This is Tabitha. Welcome to another edition of White Wellness. Today, the last day of January, the 31st, 2023, broadcasting out of New York for White Wellness Radio. That song right there, 10 years after, I'd love to change the world, way back in 1971. So anniversary extravaganza. It has been four years to the day, 13119. That was the day that I broadcast my first solo episode. I had done shows prior as uh, guest segments on other people's shows and different radio networks. And many, many years ago, I had actually been on Maxim Radio. I think this was around 2006, 07, quite some time ago. 
So White Wellness is not my first foray into radio. Nevertheless, it was much more long lasting. So four years later, my first solo show was four years ago. And here we are four years later. My first show was actually called Perversions of Yoga. And I talked about the anti-white degeneracy and the agendas happening in the yoga world. Also talked about why there is no white only yoga. Covered a lot in the last four years. Some large shows, some little snippets, but wow, we've come a long way. So for today, we're going to do some Q&A, of course, for a special festive show like this. But we're also going to focus on a continuum of the ancestral con, kind of, you know, ferreting out, uh, splicing out all of these snares and psyops that have been happening for a while, actually. And then coming full circle and really taking it back to a holistic perspective. How are we really supposed to be eating? It's not what's being advertised, whether it's in the mainstream, the mainstream alt, or even the mainstream radical, because it feels now that obviously the alternative has been taken over, but it feels like the radical segment or sector of things has also been taken over. So like we like to, the word of the week or the word of every couple of weeks. Let's see. All right, this word's a mouthful. Galley Gaskin. I've heard this one before. I'm familiar with it, actually. I think it's the name, or it was a name, of a pub. Yeah, that I'm familiar with. But anyway, baggy trousers worn by sailors of the 17th and 18th centuries. This word was a fanciful corruption of French gargasque in the Greek style, hinting at their place of origin. Galley Gaskins were not always spoken of directly in polite conversation. The first recorded substitute for them was in, in Expressionables in 1790, which suited Victorian taste so well that a rash of euphemisms emerged in the 1830s and 1840s, including unmentionables, inexplicables, unutterables, and the superlative unwhisperables. So it was a pair of trousers that I guess were kind of considered something that you wouldn't speak about in public. There are so many times in the history, um, and especially in, in white history, unfortunately, because of all the puritanical um, influence of exianity, but really Judaism, where there were all these very weird relationships with the body, which we're still seeing today, of course. I think it's peak, it's peaked, or it's peak area of that is, of course, through transsexualism and all the people who are into transhumanism, all those futuristic types, that is where we really see people who uh, have no relationship with the body. And speaking of that, all these food psyops that have consumed so much of my time, possibly yours too, these also operate in the same way. Um, it's a shame how much is out there that's a hoax and how much time and energy and money and just uh, just vril it can take out of you looking into these things. And then realizing that everything is a hoax. Every, every basically milieu out there has been hoaxified and we have to find a way to kind of give it that radical centrist national socialist balance, which is missing from essentially everything out there and it's all by design. So to start out, where do I want to start out for this show? I've got quite a lot of stuff to talk about. And I've got some really great questions that were asked to by some people. Okay, I guess I'll start out here. 
I was talking to a listener the other day and she was mentioning how there are really only three paths that our people are essentially going down. They're either getting caught in the vegan, possibly vegetarian snare, but oftentimes vegetarianism becomes veganism. It's like someone who has some type of thing going on where they're not sure if they're a guy or a girl, they eventually become a tranny. These are like gateways, right? Or they think they're a tranny because no one could actually really be a tranny, but you get what I mean. That's one path that our people for, fall for. So they get caught up in the idea that um, they don't have to eat animals or other stuff that comes along with that agenda. Oftentimes that agenda also includes people who are believing stuff about the environment that's not true. Maybe not if they're racial and vegan, but in general, that's one path that they get our people on. And they've been working that angle probably since, oh, I would say like the late 60s. That's when it really started to become a thing here in America, the whole vegetarian thing. Another path, of course, is just to eat the goy slop, the zog slop, the zog crud, just the, the takeaway, the packaged things in the store, just, you know, someone who just eats regular food, which is a lot of people too. And of course, someone could be doing the zog slop vegan diet together, which would, ugh, that would be, that would be intense. And then the other path is people who try these weird alternative diets, which are probably seem weird to people who are vegan or just eating the regular zog slop but they try all these other paths. And the three paths that I think stand out the most, especially in the last maybe 10 years that have gotten a lot of our people, the three that stand out for me, which I've dabbled in, in all three of them would be the Primal Diet of Ogenus von der Planets, the Weston A. Price Foundation Diet, not the way that Dr. Weston A. Price recommends people to eat, which we we're going to find out is vastly different than what the foundation says people should do, and the bioenergetic pro-metabolic repeat path. And I guess along with that, I'd also kind of include carnivore, which probably has an overlap with the primal diet for some people, or also has an overlap with the repeat diet, or they came from one or the other, so we'll kind of encompass all of it. But a lot of our people have tried these ways of eating, maybe they're currently doing it, maybe they're switching between another iteration to another, it almost seems like they have to get all of us in some type of snare. They got some people with OEAI. They get people with, they get our people and people in general with whatever they can get them with. So this was the one major one that I fell for was the dietary stuff. And they have to put stuff out there that looks healthy in the alternative and also kind of looks like it's um, shaking things up and comes out of nowhere, which seems kind of how these diets all came together anyway. And it seems like the Weston A. Price Foundation diet, remember, not the Weston A. Price himself, what he saw, that one seems to be the one that was the forerunner in all of this. And I remember, I think I've mentioned this, when I was at um, nutrition school, Sally Fallon came there. This was like 2004, 2005. A lot of people in the nutrition field came to speak and we got their books. She was one of them. So I knew about this whole diet back then. At that point, I was pretty macrobiotic, never vegan and macrobiotic. Now when you hear about macrobiotics, it's always in the context of just being another vegan diet. And I think that's what I want people to think. It's just a meat-only diet. I mean, it's a meat-less diet, and that is not, not, that is not true at all. So I've known about the Weston A. Price Foundation for almost 20 years now. But when I first kind of came across the information, like I said, I was pretty macrobiotic, so I kind of put it to the side. But 
later on, I remember going back to it and whenever I would kind of get into it, at first I would feel like there's always that honeymoon phase. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Where like everything feels good. Maybe you just switched off eating a bunch of stuff that wasn't so good for you. So what you are eating right now, even if it's not really 100% really good for you, it still feels better than what you were doing. Maybe it's just different. It's new. It's novel, etc. But there comes a time where it just feels like it's not working anymore. And I think a lot of people who are in the WAPF camp can't even admit that to themselves. And I've been posting some of this stuff in the last week or two, ever since even the last show that I did, the last live show, The Ancestral Con, posting about this. And it seems like a lot of people, this is like their holy grail in the racialist pro-white community are these diets, the Primal Diet, Wesson A. Price Diet, Ray Peep Diet, one of these kind of, quote, ancestral iterations. Even keto, like I said, carnivore falls into that. So it's interesting to think that the Weston A. Price Foundation, I guess, really kind of popped before, before Oyed AI, they were already a thing, but they've gotten so much more popular since Oyed AI too. That's something else to think about. But so they were like the granddaddy of this whole kind of ancestral foods revolution, whatever movement that kind of happened essentially about 20 years ago, but really gained steam probably 10 years ago and even more so about five years ago. And especially with, uh, the whole quote pandemic, especially with um, Bitcoin, especially with all of this people farming. So a lot of this is kind of feeding the whole thing, the whole swarm of the shelves being barren. So this is all kind of feeding into this idea of what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to survive. And they're giving us, the, they're giving us these ancestral templates, right? So when we really look at it like that, we can see that the Weston A. Price Foundation diet Kind of birthed the paleo diet that was kind of like a little iteration of that where they took away the grains and the beans so look weston a price foundation has every food in it that's its pro it has all the whole foods in it it's really a natural foods diet the way dr price of course would have seen it you know and talked about it and written about it their version gets really messed up where it ends up being way too many of these very high vitamin a foods um way too much fat, not enough protein, not enough focus on grains and beans, which interestingly, like I had said, uh, Dr. Price said that whole grains and beans should make up the bulk of people's diets. So he wasn't recommending all of these high vitamin A foods the foundation recommends. So much butter. They always tell you to have um, bread, butter with your bread as opposed to bread with your butter. Like you're supposed to according to them, have so much butter on a piece of bread that you can see teeth marks. So they're promoting that very yellow-orange butter. They're promoting heaps of organ meats. They're promoting all these uh, rainbow-colored vegetations. So there's a lot there. There's some guy who has some correlation with the foundation that I was finding out about who actually has his name in the credits of a book about eating the rainbow when they were promoting that whole rainbow thing we talked about on the last show. So he wasn't recommending all of these big vitamin A foods like we're seeing in the foundation diet. And that's that's the problem. They took his research and they took these foods that were in the diet in small amounts because, mind you, these were foods that there weren't a lot of it to be available in the first place. And they twisted it and they made that the foundation of the diet. And they promote the idea that vitamin A is crucial for you know all these things. Meanwhile, it's a toxin. And then they usurp. Um, 
Dr. Price's work about vitamin K2 and basically make it into vitamin A when he was talking about the healthiest people having high levels of vitamin K2, which you'll never even see on a package, that there's even an area where they'll have a, a readout for vitamin K. So that's what they've done. Think about this too. People would have taken something like beans, which are really easy to grow, and you just shake them out when it's dry and sort them for stones. Those keep for a really long time. Wouldn't people had stuff like grains and beans, which kept for a long time without the need for refrigeration, as opposed to having copious amounts of butter and liver? It's really like a, a kosher perversion of what an indigenous or ancestral person, how they would be living. But of course, that's what Zog does. So this was the foundation of it, this diet, which really was more of a grain and bean-based diet, as Dr. Price says here, right? So taking what's really more of a macrobiotic diet and then making it into this very kind of heavy diet, where it's basically all the stuff that would essentially be more condiment style in this diet become the foundation of it. And then they get a diet where they make it paleo, where they take away the grains and the beans, right? So Weston A. Price Foundation diet becomes the paleo diet, the quote caveman diet, where um, they take away the grains and the beans. They take away the only source of soluble fiber in the diet, which is beans, right? They take that away, or the best source, excuse me, the best source of soluble fiber in the diet, beans, because other things do have soluble fiber like oats and other things. But so they take away the source of soluble fiber, they take away the grains, then they make it just vegetables and they add in copious amounts of nuts for paleo. They take out the dairy, which can help some people, especially since the Weston A. Price Foundation diet is way, way, way too much dairy. We never would have had access to that much. We also would have never had access to drinking that much fresh milk. We usually would have had things that would have been more kind of preserved, things like the fat only, like the butter or ghee, right? Or we would have had more ferments. So paleo gets rid of that. But then they tell you to eat all of this vegetation, all of this kale, all of this spinach, all these sweet potatoes, all these carrots, all these brightly colored things. So someone could get very vitamin A toxic on both the Weston A. Price Foundation diet and the paleo diet. Okay, then the paleo diet becomes not strict enough. People probably start getting all types of problems from eating all those uh, beta carotene rich vegetations all the time, right? and also too much fat on this diet as well. And then they go into keto where they give up all the carbohydrates and they eat more fat and possibly still lots of vegetables that are high in uh, A, as well as maybe trying to, at this point, maybe getting into things like liver because all these diets promote liver and, um, and organs. And then keto ends up waving someone into the carnivorous regime where they just start eating nothing but meat or nothing but just meat eggs and some do milk, some don't. And then that fails. And then that becomes the repeat approach, right? And at some point, maybe they go into the primal approach between like keto and carnivore. They'll try like the raw, the raw foods diet, you know, the raw meat diet, the Ajnus von der Plattens diet. So every five or 10 years, there's a new Zog rebrand of essentially the same movement, yet simplified more and more until there's no food left to eat, right? Who, who has ever felt like that? I can relate. No food left to eat. What am I going to eat right now, right? What am I going to do? You have this anxiety about what are you even going to eat? So there's no more food left to eat and the gut microbiome is destroyed. 
as obvious because the previous version didn't work. It's the same exact people going deeper down the same rabbit hole, getting sicker by switching to a new version in hopes that it will heal them only while making them sicker. And all they do is regurgitate the same information with flawed arguments from the previous versions of books, documents, websites, etc. that went somewhat mainstream. And then they just promote the idea that high fat, low carbohydrate, ancestral eating, which is what some of these promote in some way, shape or form. The repeat diet doesn't as much, but it's very easy to eat um, a lot of fat on there. And it's, it's not necessarily a low carb diet, so it gets that part right. But the type of carbohydrates on there aren't really so ancestral. The idea that we would be eating the majority of our carbohydrates from fruit and milk is not, is really not possible. It never really happened. And that really wouldn't make much sense, especially for Europeans to be eating lots of tropical fruit. And if you eat too much milk, especially the, the yellow milks, you know, the ones that they recommend as being the ones that are best for us. They say there's a lot of K in there. It's really a lot of A in there. And you're pairing that with the orange sweet tropical fruits. You can get vitamin A toxic and it can happen to anybody. So all they do is they, they twist and cherry pick the work of someone like Dr. Price, the original Dr. Price, the, the actual guy. And then, and then they basically make that into their own uh, dietary psyop. How unfortunate because it's so different from what he saw when he was there. So eating starchy foods, that's what people would have eaten. Starchy things like beans, some tubers. Typically, if you think about it, the roots and the tubers, not only do they have less anti-nutrients because they're in the ground, right? They typically have less vitamin A. Now, of course, you're going to say, oh, there's an orange carrot. Yes, but there are also carrots that could be white or yellow. And there also could be beets that could be white as opposed to yellow or red. So that was kind of the real human diet or closer to how we really want to be eating is starchy foods and meat. Not a lot of fat, and not a lot of organ. And this is even said in the uh, biblical guidelines for eating. You can take it to mean what you want, but it mentions to not eat the fat and the organs and talks about the meat being where the best things are, and that there's compounds, there's actually vitamin A, because if you look into the biblical diet, it's actually very low in vitamin A. It's just interesting historically. I just like studying the idea of different diets. I've done this with TCM, I've done this with Vedicism, getting an idea of different information and how it can translate into what's going on now. If you look into it, it's very, very interesting. And this is actually a good way to open the eyes to people who you may know in real life who are Christian because it could open their eyes to other things out there that uh, the Skeksis are doing if they're not Skeksis aware yet. Something to consider. I've uh, actually been using this technique and it's working beautifully. Eating starchy foods and meat provide energy, protein, and minerals the body needs. That's really what's pro-metabolic. So the idea of a lot of this stuff that they're promoting through these diets is, is not, unfortunately. But they also tell you not to eat these starches. That's basically what they do. All of these diets, if you go back to the Weston A. Price, and then we wave into paleo, then we go to like keto, raw 
raw primal, carnivore, repeat, every single one is pulling you away further and further from eating anything that has any soluble fibers whatsoever. It's, um, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting how that works. It pulls you away further and further from actually eating anything that's starchy. They, all these diets claim that eating starchy foods like will make you fat. Have you noticed that? That's interesting, considering a lot of, a lot of people across, across the world have eaten some type of starchy something with protein and they've sustained themselves pretty well. Think about the cowboy diet. Think about, you know, cowboys out on the plains. Their diet was very much a diet like this. They would have dried meats. They would have um, little, you know, pancake types of things they would cook up. They ate a lot of beans because dry, dried beans can keep for a long time and were a great uh, source of protein. They were incredible, incredibly filling. So they kept things like hard biscuits, uh, dried beef, like jerky, dried fruit. All of this is pretty low A. Interesting, right? Sourdough bread. They would forage, of course, for plants. They make little corn biscuits. They would eat wild animals. So we can see that really more of a quote ancestral diet. This whole idea, it's I guess it's just like anything else. When they tell you it's something that it is, like, hey guys, it's ancestral, it's essentially that no, it wasn't ancestral. Uh, we were just using that word and we were hoaxing you. That's essentially what that means. So none of these diets essentially promote how humans are supposed to eat. That's why people just keep on jumping back and forth and back and forth trying to find something that works when all of these ways have something in it that is a good thing. That's how people get into it in the first place, but they're missing the main picture. So now what the Weston A. Price Foundation does is they focus on liver and they focus on fat-soluble vitamins, which at this point in my research, I'm not even so sure there actually even is something as a fat-soluble vitamin. This whole thing may actually be a hoax altogether, which would make total sense because, okay, we know vitamin A is not a vitamin, right? So what does that leave? D, E, and K, right? K is thought to be a bacteria. That's why something like natto, which is fermented Japanese soybeans, they are rich in K because it's a fermented food. So the, the um, belief is if your body is healthy, you will get K2 from your stomach bacteria. So there goes the theory that K is a vitamin. Then D is actually something that's only made by the sun. It's a hormone. The stuff that they tell us to take in the bottle, the D3 is actually um, in the ingredient they put into rat poison. So we know that's not a vitamin. But all we have left is E. E supplements are incredibly toxic and they're recommending them all over the pro-metabolic uh, world as something that will help with fertility. People usually take those when they're vitamin A toxic, but that uh, diet recommends, or that those people recommend people eat uh, lots of vitamin A for fertility. So this whole idea of quote, fat soluble vitamins, I think that that's actually a hoax. And I think that they want us to focus on, oh my God, we have to get so nutrient dense. Why don't we focus on not being toxic? That would be so much better and so much easier and really a lot cheaper and a lot more fun than focusing on nutrient density, focusing on you know, metabolism. Why don't we focus on feeling 
good and not being toxic as opposed to kind of regulating toxicity through, uh, you know, consumption of the wrong foods. So basically, the foundation promotes, quote, fat-soluble vitamins and organs as opposed to grains, beans, and starches that were foundations of man's diet throughout history. So a lot of what Dr. Price was talking about was actually very much macrobiotic or blue zone-like or ancestral historical. And of course, this is going to totally vary. There's going to be people in Peru who are eating an ancestral diet. There's going to be people in Iceland eating their, theirs, their um, ancestral diet, people in Fiji eating theirs, people in Tibet eating theirs, people in France eating theirs. This is going to look very different all across the world as it should be because those people look different and their culture is different and their biology is different and their environment is different. So of course it's going to look different. Okay, let's check the chat and see how everyone's doing. Okay, we've got Epiphany, we've got Pia. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks, happy anniversary. So yeah, there's so much to unpack with all this PSYOP stuff, um, but I can't unsee it anymore. It's, uh, it's too obvious to me what's going on with this. So I thought it would be important to kind of just share what I've learned. Uh, so people fall, if they're in the snare right now, they're just going to exit it after this show, hopefully. So what else can I say? about all of this basically what i was calling the white diet psyops yeah i think those are white diet psyops basically those ones i i went over they have a little bit of something going on that kind of appeals to people but they don't really get to the root of it all and they always have someone kind of chasing something while they're really not getting to the real piece that they have to get to all right, so what else can I mention about this? Oh, this is in um, connection to the Weston A. Price Foundation. If uh, you go to a page, actually now it's archived. So whenever something's been archived, that means it's been scrubbed off the internet and now it's in the web.archive.org. So it was a list of who was on the board of the Price Pottinger Foundation, which is another Weston A. Price um, associated foundation. I think originally they broke into a couple of different foundations of Price Pottinger, and then there's Weston A. Price, I believe. Um, yeah, okay. So they're connected. They're connected in more than just name. So they are connected foundations. And this archive page from 2020 for the Price Pottinger Foundation, there was a crazy list of people who were on their advisory board. So it has people like Joseph Mercola, who I believe is, I believe is controlled for sure. I think he's been controlled for a while, but I think they did that stunt sometime last year or the year before where he said that he was going to do something different with his page and his articles were going to vanish after 48 hours. I think that was supposed to make it look like he was a credible source, especially with the whole Oyed AI stuff. But that name is um, suspect, could even be an Oyve. And then also on this list, interesting, is someone who has associations with um, the two investment funds that own most of the world, um, Blackstone and BlackRock. The person's name is Vivian Blackstone. So why would someone who has connections with Blackstone and BlackRock, which are huge companies, those are the ones that I think they're buying up 
some of that farmland in the Midwest, are they not? So why would someone like that be on the advisory board for the Price Pottinger Foundation, which is um, connected to the Wesley Price Foundation? Sounds pretty unsavory. Oh, and something too to, um, to note, uh, the Wesley Price Foundation has said um, terrible things about Hitler. Ajahnas um, von der Planitz has said um, same in his book, and uh, as has, has Ray Pete. So, yeah, can we really trust somebody who says awful things about Hitler? Speaking of awful things about Hitler, last night, if you need any more proof than I've already provided, last night there was this uh, movie premiere that the Weston A. Price Foundation was, I guess you'd say they were hosting it. Um, I guess you'd say hosting it, but... There was this premiere last night. Let me just bring up the text for it or the, I made a post on Telegram. Okay, so they were promoting, I got an email because I'm actually still a member of the foundation. Even though I'm saying all this stuff, I, I, I'm finding it out and I'm telling you as I'm finding it out. The Weston A. Price Foundation is promoting this film and I started watching it last night. It was live, it was like, it was horrible. I had to turn it off, but I just wanted to see like what they were doing. So they're promoting this film called Never Again uh, is Now Global. I think that's the whole name of the show, or maybe just the whole name of the thing is Never Again is Now Global. So this is a movie that the Weston A. Price Foundation is promoting that's directed by a hollow hoax, quote, survivor and a human rights activist. And the film features personal stories from fellow survivors and their descendants detailing the atrocities of the past promised 75 years ago. So more of that theater, right? Ne to never again occur while they draw parallels to the Oyid policies we're seeing today. So I watched this last night, watched about maybe 20 minutes or so, and they were doing this crazy thing. Well, it's not crazy, it's, it's obvious and expected, where they would show a quote survivor and the person would be rattling on and talking about, you know, the whole, the whole thing, and then, at one point, they would just completely flow into a conversation about Oyed AI, just completely flow into it with, with no idea that there was a break in the type of subject matter, just completely flow into it and then start talking about something with Oyed AI, something with the vaccination, something to do with the policies, the lockdown, uh, the discrimination against the anti-vaxxers. So this is, this is to get people who think that um, the people who are promoting the vaccines are like the Fourth Reich or something like that. This is the propaganda that they're promoting. So the Wesley Price is promoting anti-Hitler propaganda and they're also promoting the Holla hoax at the same time for some reason to tell people that it's okay that you're not vaccinated, the vaccine is bad, Hitler is bad, but vitamin A is really good and hey, by the way, there's vitamin A in vaccines. Okay, so we know that they're obviously a hoax by now, I'm, I'm sure. But I remember seeing that over and over again in the movie or hearing it last night when I was watching it. They keep on showing all these different oives, like bemoaning and then going straight into it, like a flow, like a Grateful Dead song, like never stopping when, the, when this, the next song begins. And they kept on doing that over and over and over, trying to make it seem like the hollow hoax and Oyed AI was like one, one event. It was one event. And there was like 75 years 
and it was it was just one event. That's what they're trying to make it sound like. So we obviously can't trust the Weston A. Price Foundation for anything. Um, I don't knowing don't even know if it's worth like even saying subscribe to the magazine. I'm probably thinking it's it's not at this point. Ah, <sighs> yeah, but they are definitely. Um, not to be trusted. I wouldn't trust any health guru out there who says um, negative things about Hitler. I guess that would be essentially most of them, right? Yeah. But the Weston A. Price does get right the idea of natural foods, the idea of local foods, the idea of not consuming um, caffeine, especially coffee and sugar. So I will give it to them for that. They're definitely right about that. But overall, they are a limited hangout, unfortunately. And if someone wants to get an idea of what Dr. Pete was really, what Dr. Pete, <laughs> Dr. Price was really recommending in his, um, his studies, you can read his book, um, what's it called again? Something in Physical Degeneration, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. You can read that book. You could probably get the PDF somewhere on, in, online, but you can read how everyone's diet that he saw was different, but it still kind of had a bit of the same pattern. Sad that they've usurped his work. Um, yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. I wonder if Dr. Price was a fan of Hitler. Hmm, that would be interesting to find out. I mean, I know Dr. Price was a racialist. I mean, most people were, oh, something else, speaking of, of racialists. The Weston A. Price Foundation promotes miscegenation. They say the only thing that has to do in regards to someone, you know, uh, why would someone have like a, a problem, you know, like when they come out with like a problem, it only could be diet related. So any type of like abnormality could only be diet related, which of course it's, it's more than that. It's also like emotions, environment, like it's, it's more, but they say that there's you know, there's miscegenation, no problem with it. You know, it doesn't cause degradation. There is an old school paper of Dr. Price's, which I've been trying to get my hands on for a while, where he actually talks just about that. It's called Race Decline and Race Degeneration. And he talks just about that. So I'm sure he would be horrified to know they're promoting the idea that miscegenation was okay. That is uh, definitely not the case. Also, Thomas Cowan promotes miscegenation as well. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's an oive because Cowan is just really Cohen or Cohen. So, yeah, um, promoting miscegenation, promoting vitamin A, um, saying terrible things about Hitler doesn't sound like our type of person, doesn't sound pro-white to me, not at all. Also, something to note, um, speaking, speaking of vitamin A, I have this book that uh, Dr. Cowan wrote years ago, and some of it is actually interesting, but there are recommendations in there for women who have, you know, like painful periods, short periods, endometriosis, like, you know, all types of women things. And some of the suggestions are to rub copper on your abdomen if you have like copper lotion on your abdomen, if you have a short period, which actually copper toxicity could even cause a short period or many of things. And it suggests for every female ailment that the woman megadoses herself with vitamin A. 
So these people are promoting so much of it. And also people who got ill or more likely to get ill from anything, what they think is the virus, whatever they want to think, if they got ill in the last three years, you can call it whatever you whatever makes you happy. That is one of the reasons from vitamin A toxicity. And there's vitamin A in vaccinations. No wonder people get sick when they get them. And also something else, they were focusing so much on 5G, right? The whole thing, like as soon as like the quote pandemic started, like they went to the press with the contagion myth, right? And then it became a dialectic of virus versus 5G. Never talking about toxicity or having a stagnant liver. Nope, it could only be 5G or the virus, that's it. So then they create this crazy like tinfoil hat style argument and then people are like, oh my God, it's obviously a virus. It couldn't just be that we're getting radiated. That wouldn't be happening. So they created this ridiculous idea, wrote a book about it, got it out to the press as soon as they could, right? Where it just ends up being, I think, a diversion is what it is. And I also think too that the sensitivity from the 5G or from any of that can be what's considered an agitator where it will stir up detox symptoms or a bile dump. So if someone's got stagnant liver, they'll try to dump bile if they go into a agitating state. And that could be something like being around EMFs, um, sweating, you know, whatever, like kind of exercise, you can get that feeling. So you can get a headache, you can get nauseous, you can get tingling spine uh, and, and head, those kind of like sensitivity symptoms from EMF. That's actually just from having a stagnant liver. That's what that is. So it's being, it's being sensitive to it because it's triggering a detox or a bile dump in the body. So that's why people were getting ill. That's why people were getting progressively ill, right? And everyone's got a trigger of what makes themselves ill. So they went to the press immediately with this narrative of virus V5G. That too was a hoax, right? Never mentioning toxicity or stagnant liver. I mean, come on. And they recommend all of these diets out there, whether it's the Zog Slop, Goy Slop, Zog Crud, Zio Sludge Diet, whether it's some variation of veganism or vegetarianism, or whether it's alt diet, all these things cause a stagnant liver. No wonder people were always getting sick or getting sick or just feeling crappy. Even feeling crappy could actually be like feeling like um, just like not feeling good, right? Not being happy. That could be like a bile dump or like toxic bile. We always want to believe that it's something else that's making us sick. What if our own toxicity was making us sick? What if all these choices we've made food-wise have been making us sick for years, right? So we cannot trust the Weston A. Price Foundation. Um, we can see that eating normal, natural foods in their whole state is an obvious obvious but that they've used um, propaganda and unfortunately usurped the work of Dr. Rustin A. Price, who was a racialist who promoted an ancestral, racially appropriate diet, given the areas of the world that he studied, as opposed to a foundation who is promoting, quote, vitamin A, miscegenation, and says terrible things about Hitler. So in closing, don't trust Rustin A. Price Foundation. Okay. Yeah. So now you're probably wondering, well, what the hell should we be eating? Yes, that's it. Effervescent M. Yes. Thanks for exposing these shills. Yeah, you're welcome. I was just like, when I found this out, I was like, damn, I mean, how many of us have, have 
gotten into one of these things at one point. All I think all of us have at some point and thought about it and said, oh, our ancestors probably did this, right? I mean, even if you think about it, the repeat diet is whatever you want to call it. There was, there's no repeat diet. Let's just say a whatever it is, but they promote, it oftentimes ends up being too much fat, even though originally it's not supposed to be too much fat. It ends up being very high in fructose. And like I said earlier, I don't think we ever ate that much fruit at once, especially if fruit was seasonal, right? It ends up being very high in vitamin A because of the organs and just uh, way, way, way too much milk. It ends up being just high in dairy in general, disproportionate amount of dairy to other foods. It also ends up being high in, in copper because of um, the liver and things like that. And it's low in fiber. Oftentimes it really only has the fiber of fruits or um, a carrot. And they end up both being high in vitamin A. And you will know if you go to the bathroom and you wipe and you see your poop and it has more of that like yellowish, like orange color, that's that coming out in your poop. That's the vitamin A coming out in your poop. So yeah, that's what that is. You'll know, like if you eat a carrot, like you'll see it pass out. But this is the craziest thing. Like this is what like put it all together for me. I don't even know if I mentioned this on the last show. Maybe I did because I've done, I did another lecture um, after this. And I, I think I mentioned it there. I've been talking about it nonstop pretty much. Anyone who, who will actually listen to it. But um, the Retin-A, those creams that they always tell women are quote anti-aging. They're not anti-aging. They, uh, they peel your skin off. If you consider losing your skin, anti-aging, that's your belief. But to me, losing skin is, is a part of aging. So they peel off your skin because of the retinoids. So why does a carrot or a sweet potato or whatever make you make you poop sometimes? Like, you know, and go quickly, especially if you eat it raw. I guess you wouldn't eat a sweet potato raw, but let's say a carrot. It's because it's peeling off the insides of your um your body like your intestine as it's pulling it out so your body wants to purge it why do you usually feel like you have to take a poop after you drink coffee because your body dumps bile and it wants to purge the toxicity so oftentimes we have to use toxins to produce what naturally could be had but then again we tell ourselves what's more toxic holding on to the poop or taking the toxin to facilitate taking the poop sometimes you have to make the decision but if we're eating more of a natural foods diet, eating a diet that has a starch and has protein, remember they, they all get a little bit of something right, which is why they all hook people, right? It's almost like how the religions will hook people with something that actually is true, and then the rest of it is just kind of like, you know, bows and ribbons and stuff like that. So the Western diet is kind of similar to this pro-metabolic approach. And if you notice, there's a bit of a fetishization of the 50s uh, in some of the people who are promoting this idea. Half of them probably have to be controlled opposition, I would probably venture to assume. But if you look, oftentimes they'll be promoting like 50s style foods. And were those foods uh, healthier than what we had today? Well, yes, it was a healthier time, but that wasn't really the pinnacle of health either. People just looked a hell of a lot better back then than they do now. But using that as kind of our focal point of like the pinnacle of, of, of the great times of the white race, I think is a little off balance because that was still the Western diet that had added fats and added sugars and decreased fiber. 
which would actually lead to vitamin A toxicity more quickly. So when we look at these areas of the world Dr. Price studied where they were eating starches and proteins and not too much fat and maybe a little bit of the high vitamin A foods, they were also eating foods with soluble fiber so they were shitting out the vitamin A toxicity quickly as opposed to it storing in their liver. And that's how we end up with the problems that we have today or many of the problems that we have today. So who is really eating their natural diet anymore is the question we have to ask ourselves. A lot of us probably aren't. Maybe some of us are. Maybe some of them are farm folk out there are because it's just easier for them and it's just what they what they do. It's just part of the gig of being a farmer. But it seems like a lot of us aren't, especially the ones of us who are on a search for health, right? The ones of us who are really trying to find what is the pinnacle of health. Those of us actually oftentimes are less likely to be eating a diet that's actually suited for us, which is kind of interesting to reflect on that, that the ones of us who seem to be the most health-oriented would oftentimes eat a diet that's the least reflective of what our ancestors would be eating. That just shows that this propaganda has been very successful. Plus, they all kind of promote some of these diets as kind of almost like a, a click or a a style and they're also very popular within a lot of the the white communities online the pro-white or the racialist communities online are these diets these animal-based diets or quote ancestral diets are the ones that seem to be the kind of diet of the time you know or the diet of kind of the movement if you will I guess there are some people who are maybe in the other way who are maybe vegan or something like that but it doesn't seem like the the overarching uh, amount of people are. It seems most of them are kind of more an animal-based type of thing if, if they're talking about it at all. I mean, I hope that at least most people who are aware of the world's foremost problem are also aware of, you know, the snares with food. I think it's a pretty... I mean, if they're, if they're doing what they're doing other places, they're definitely tampering with the food. That could be, that could be one place to, to look into things. Oh, and something else, too, I was thinking about, thinking about, you know, the idea that the diets nowadays have really nothing to do with the ancestral diet that we're really supposed to be eating, regardless of our, our race or ancestry. But I'm thinking about how a lot of people who are into this pro-metabolic approach, they take all these measures to lower estrogen and stress, which seems to be like the focal point of it, which it's weird to also have your focal point be things that are negative, right? Like, shouldn't your focal point be being really healthy, being really happy, sleeping well, feeling really, like, loose and flexible? Like, shouldn't that be your focal point as opposed to lower estrogen and stress? That just sounds horrible to me. Well, anyway, so the focus is on that because the diet, this is hilarious in retrospect, the diet is brimming with, quote, vitamin A, which increases estrogen and stress. <laughs> It is the epitome of retardation. I wish that got more than 160 views, but, um, eh, you know, the page is probably being suppressed. But yeah, isn't that crazy? And I remember when I was like doing that regime, I just like recently, I'm, I'm um, orating and giving this information as a lot of I'm finding it out in, in real life because I just kind of found out about all of this. I guess December 22nd was really when I was like, oh shit, I'm like, so that's what it is. I'm like, then I, you know, now I'm here, I guess a month, a month or so later. But I was feeling so stressed when I was eating that way. And I'm thinking like, what is this? Isn't this 
the regime to lower stress, to lower estrogen? I don't think it is. I think it's actually designed to do the opposite, which would make total sense that they would put it out there. Uh, but as soon as I transition to eating more the way I eat now, and I'm still eating meat, so, you know, not like eating uh, just uh, plant foods, but when I started to eat more beans and go towards like the low vitamin A way, immediately I just started feeling way more chill. And I've been talking to some other people and who are doing this ever since I think they saw my show or I sent them a message and they're like, I'm so much chill, more chill. And I'm also talking to people in real life who are doing this and same thing. They're like, I'm just so much more chill now, you know, going to the bathroom really well, feeling really good. It's crazy to think that they've slowly through these iterations of quote, ancestral psyops have removed soluble fiber out of the diet. And then they add in all these vitamin A toxic foods. And then if you're vegan, they may have soluble fiber in your diet, but you're not allowed to have meat, right? So you get, you get fucked in that way. So they always have a way to snare people. They'll give these, this people one part of the diet. You get to, you guys get to find out you have to eat animal protein and you guys get to find out you have to eat, you know, soluble fiber starch, right? Things like starches, things like that. So they give out, they give out a little bit to different people, hoping that they'll never overlap and share the recipe. That's how the hoax works. It's almost like how they create these, these um, Hegelian dialectics and like these, uh, these ping pong matches, you know, carnivore, vegan, Democrat, um, Republican, or Republican, you know, Libshit, you know, that type of thing. They're designed to do that so they never kind of cross over to the other side and see that, oh, it, it is a radical centrist. It is a kind of a, a national socialist type of, you know, middle of the road type of way. Oh, it actually is something in between. Interesting. So yeah, I've been a posting about this think in the last week or so um, some people weren't happy to hear about this but that's okay I've noticed that when I post things about uh, vitamin A ancestral diets being psyops and cunnilingus those topics don't go over well and usually people leave the page every day that if that happens it does it doesn't happen every day but when I do have posts like that people just don't want to hear about those things. I have no idea why but that's unfortunate so yeah, beans, the forgotten food and the richest source of soluble fiber. And at one point I will do a show about uh, beans and using beans in the way to uh, help health. But today I want to focus on celebrating the anniversary. I want to focus on exposing these ancestral psyops on a deeper level, um, exposing how they strategically leave out what we're really supposed to be eating and keep on diluting it. And it's like they keep on blenderizing the same smoothie. You know, it's like a different, a little bit different every time, but we keep on falling for the, the fact that it doesn't have enough the ingredients that we need, right? That's kind of how it works or how it, how it seems. So I wanted to spend the time to do that. And I also wanted to talk about macrobiotics, which is something that I did do some talking about the first time I ever did racialist radio, and this was back, when was this? This was even further ago. This was back in uh, February 4th, 2018. My first time ever, like I said, doing um, radio in this milieu, and I had talked a little bit about macrobiotics. So that's something else that I'd 
going to be talking about on this show is talking about that and how that can really be used as a template to create a way that works for any of us, depending on where we're at the world, where we're at in the world, where we're at in our life. Because of course, everyone's regime is going to be slightly different. It can't be all the same because we're all living in different areas. Even if we're all white and we're all of the same race, we're living in different areas and having different experience. We're different um, sexes, we're different ages. So we have to take all of that into consideration. Let's take a gander at the chat. Epiphany is saying no GMOs, no hybridized foods. Yeah, that was, we had so much less of that in the, uh, in the centuries past, just as a, I guess, a natural facet of the fact that things were less poisoned in many, in many ways, but they still were promoting many agendas back then, but it was, it was still, you know, in comparison to now, it was, it looks like it's a softer and more welcome time. I can, I can get that. I think we're going to take a song break. And then when we get back, I will continue wrapping up some details with uh, this, this little expose on uh, the, quote, ancestral diets and how they kind of hide what we're really supposed to be eating. And then we're going to be getting into what we are supposed to be eating, as opposed to what they tell us we're supposed to be eating. Let me just cue up the music. Just give me one moment. Okay, we will be right back.
are back. That was the fifth dimension, Age of Aquarius, 1969. And I am your host, Tabitha. You are listening to Anniversary Extravaganza on Light Wellness Radio. So before the break, we were talking quite a bit about all of these, quote, ancestral diets and how they've essentially been all kind of iterations stemming from the, quote, West, West, not quote, but the Weston A. Price Foundation diet, not the work of Dr. Weston A. Price, who saw a very different diet when he was doing his studies. So now let's just wrap up what I was speaking about. So they do have a little bit of good that they always promote within, you know, a whole wrapper of, of many lies, and that's always kind of how it goes. So like I said, Weston A. Price was right about the whole caffeine, especially coffee and sugar, importance for local foods and natural foods, the Weston A. Price Foundation diet, but they also promote these foods that are very high in vitamin A, very high in fat, way too many um, eat the rainbow colored vegetables, uh, cod liver oil, so they have some things right and they have some things wrong. And then some people oftentimes get to a point in that diet where they're not eating any grains and beans anymore because their gut feels so irritated. But that's probably because of all the other foods that they're eating that are causing the gut damage, like eating all that fat, eating all those vitamin A rich foods, all those vegetables. Remember, vegetables have a lot of anti-nutrients, especially the ones that grow above ground. Remember, Grains and beans don't really have fat because they're also, they're like kind of protected. So the idea that eating vegetables is going to get somebody healthy, that's never really been something that's been proven, especially eating all these brightly colored ones. If you look at a lot of like areas of the world where they have used vegetables to heal, they're usually light vegetables. They're usually actually pale vegetables. I can think of certain Japanese vegetables offhand that are very pale that would be for healing like let's say daikon root which is a white radish uh, lotus root which is like almost like a cream a cream colored type of root thing uh, burdock which is a root that has a brown skin but a but a white flesh so there are a lot of vegetables that actually would be healing but these ones that are so rich in the carotenoids whether it be beta carotene or even things like lutein which are in spinach or lycopene which are in tomatoes these are all carotenoids they're all forms of, of a all of this can cause problems right especially in the context of the modern day diet there's still some people who don't really understand how this is even a problem but we have to be able to see the past and then see now and see how this doesn't really work especially given what we have going on right now with just, you know, how people, how people live and how there's so much toxicity in the world. We have to take all that into consideration. Plus the fact we're able to get all these foods year round. This would never happen in the, in the past before, right? Especially here in New York, you can get anything you want. Like even locally, you can get dragon fruit right now in January. That wasn't a thing like years ago or when I was a youngster, it wasn't a thing. It's, it's interesting how that's all really changed very quickly. So that's what I have to say about Wesley Price Foundation. Then I would say about um, the repeat style diet, um, getting adequate protein. That is one of the biggest pros of that approach. But oftentimes I think that some of the proteins they recommend, like way too much dairy, um, 
and maybe you know way too many eggs as well I would say that would be problematic uh, as opposed to kind of the, the fear of eating muscle meat thinking that all you have to eat is like the wiggly meat or the gelatinous meats and those are great that's another pro too um, the idea of eating the wiggly meats like eating eating the oxtail make sure you you know you purge it of the fat there are traditional ways to prepare stocks where you can basically get rid of all the fat as opposed to scraping it off afterwards and cooking it and it just ugh, it smells up the whole kitchen I use traditional Chinese methods when I make stock where I will boil it like something like an oxtail or a chicken you boil it for 15 or minutes or a half hour on like a medium boil and then you purge that water and that takes off most of the fat and then you run it under cold water and you clean it and then you start it and then you cook it and that's how I do I don't use any vinegar I don't use any aromatics no bay leaf no mirepoix nothing just the uh the bones or just the meat that's how I that's how I do it but yeah one of the one of the strong points of that approach would be wiggly meats like oxtail and, and cheek uh, but the fear of eating muscle meats is is kind of ridiculous. And the idea that we would have eaten more dairy, especially something like milk unfermented, really doesn't make any sense. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense that someone would try to stimulate their metabolism with foods that were rich in copper and vitamin A with sugar, dairy, and caffeine. That doesn't really make sense when you think about it. And I think anyone now who's doing it they're probably pretty young, but eventually they will hit a wall um, because you can't go on like that for long. That's kind of just like the sad diet in many in many ways, like the 1950s style uh, sad diet, which remember we, we like to glorify what we think was one of like the last glorious moments, but it's it can be it can be way better than the 1950s. I can I can assure everyone of that. So yeah, as we can see, there are some things that are good that they'll promote within these regimes. And that's how, of course, they get us by promoting stuff that's that's true, right? Or that, that appeals to us or actually does give us success. But they always have to kind of put this extreme uh, Talmudic twist on it, which makes it just completely imbalanced. And oftentimes I think so many people just, for some reason or another, they just, they fall into this, they fall into the abyss of imbalance and don't see that it's imbalanced. And then I guess they become more imbalanced. That's how they don't see that it's imbalanced in the first place. I guess that's how they play on the fact that people are attracted to it who don't feel balanced in the first place. That, that must be what it is. Epiphany is saying natural fruits and vegetables aren't bright and colorful, but they are quite ugly. The bright stuff has been bred that way. Yeah, exactly. Or ever go to the store and you see an orange and it just looks like the color is too perfect the skin is too perfect the shape is too perfect it's almost like people want a sanitized version like they want fruit and vegetables to look like that uh, they never want to see meat with like a bone right some people don't don't do bones at all like i know people who don't eat bone like meat with a bone they just don't for some reason i i don't know what that's uh what that's about but uh, I think that's really, really weird that people would not eat the bone or like not eat meat that was on the bone. Oh, and one last thing I should mention in regards to um, kind of exposing 
these dietary regimes and gurus as uh, anti-white psyops. There was a film that was made in 2016 called On the Back of a Tiger. I think it just recently was released. It featured Ray Pete. But the guys who made this film, they're like a hired uh, PR crew of the Gates Foundation, of the Bill Gates Foundation. So it's kind of unusual that he made a film with these guys called On the Back of a Tiger, which was made 2016. It came out, I think it just came out last year or yeah, I think it just came out last year. So it was on tap for like six years. But these guys are part of a hired PR crew of the Gates Foundation, the Bill Gates Foundation, the same Bill Gates that promotes the golden rice that's fortified with vitamin A, the same Bill Gates that wants to vaccinate the whole world. Of course, and Bill Gates could just be like a transsexual. It's this is the actor. It doesn't it doesn't matter. None of this none of this is really real in the sense that this conversation is real or me giving it is real. But this is just what they're doing. So how can we really trust what Ray Pete is saying if he has connections with these guys who are part of the Gates Foundation? These guys have very, very skexified names, very oive. Brad Abrams and Jeremy Stewart. That sounds really very, uh, very, very oive. And also both of their surnames, Abrahams and especially Stewart, are high profile peerage names, which are, if you look online, there's a website called thepeerage.com. It's a pervasive privilege class of, of people. They have like their there's like all these names in this database. Pete is also on that database as well. The last name P-E-A-T. Uh, it's interesting that all of a sudden, I mean, I had never heard personally of repeat before 2020 either. But then it's interesting how like all that became popular just, just around the time that a lot of people were hitting a wall on the carnivore diet and just like not being able to sustain anymore without the carbohydrates and then that comes out. It's just interesting how they kind of all planned it. And that kind of became a thing during the beginning um, of Oyed AI, as did people buying a lot of crypto. There are a lot of people who are into the pro-metabolic approach who are into crypto, who are telling everyone to move to Mexico, or they are. So that's, I don't know, just kind of, kind of weird how these dietary psyops almost become like a lifestyle for a lot of people, right? Yeah, I guess that's kind of how it goes. All right, so now let's get into some information uh, in regards to macrobiotics. Let's talk a little bit about macrobiotics, and then I'm going to answer questions. I have questions already that people have asked me, and I have them over here ready to go. But if anyone listening live would like to ask a question, feel free to drop it into the chat box and uh, I will answer it when I get to the questions. So yeah, let's talk now about macrobiotics uh, and how that can relate to the idea of eating a diet that's more in line with what would be considered ancestral. So as many of you know, I was raised on a macrobiotic diet. This was something that came to the States, I think in the mid to late 60s, it became popular. 
my parents got into it in 1976. So the word means great life or big life. And the thing that's cool about it is that it's not just a way of eating like a lot of these things are these days. It's actually kind of based on the yin yang or the yin yang kind of, I guess, traditional Chinese. I think it's got Aryan roots, traditional kind of uh, system that balances the extremes of things, right? So we're always talking about how Zog loves to promote extremes, right? They promote extremes with diet, with body type, with, uh, with, with everything, music, media. There's extremes with everything out there, political ideology, religion, you know, sexual expression. Uh, they have a, something there to, to um, ruffle the feathers of, of anybody. So this type of way is very much in line with creating balance, creating that radical center, that, that true holistic midpoint, as opposed to just like riding the fringes of one of these, you know, extreme this, extreme that. It's so easy to be extreme one way or another, right? And that really doesn't make for a lot of balance. It's, it's really not that cool either. It may feel cool in the younger years, but you really want to cultivate balance. Part of balance is inner harmony. A lot of people these days are lacking inner harmony. Uh, trying any of these diets that I just spent the last hour plus speaking of, that's a sure way to get into a state of low inner harmony is eating any one of these high vitamin A um, dietary iterations is an easy way to get into a state of uh, non-inner harmony. So macrobiotics is more than just a diet, of course. It's, it's, a, it's a really a national socialist philosophy, I would say. And there's an overlap with some of the NSDAP actually having a relationship and a love and a practice of macrobiotics. So what is macrobiotics? It's a way of life based on an understanding of the rhythm, the ebb and flow of nature. That sounds pretty racial, sounds pretty normal. The word macrobiotic was originally used in literature by the German scholar Christoph Wilhelm von Hufland in Das Macrobiotic in 1796. So even though this macrobiotic diet came from Japan to the States in the 60s, it, um, it originally, the word was used in this German book, Das Macrobiotic, back in 1796. In Greek, macro means big or great, and biotic means concerning of life. So the word refers to the big view of life. And something else, if you notice with these dietary cliques, they give you a smaller view of life because it gives you like tunnel vision for thinking like anyone who doesn't practice it is like horrible or... It just creates like more of this ideological divide. And the ideological divide happens between our people too. I mean, I've seen dietary fights on Talmudgram, uh, Twatter, possibly even Instagroid and, and other communities break out between our people about diet, right? So the hand rubbing intensifies when there's uh, quibbling about what to eat. What if we all had a perspective that was a big view of life and we ate in a way that balanced our constitution, which could be ever changing, just like life, just like, I don't know, breathing, right? As opposed to sticking to this strict regime that gives us this kind of ideological rendering us almost Talmudic with tunnel vision. 
So it means the big view of life. So that was the beginning of the first time the word was ever used was 1796. Then fast forward to 1893, where George Osawa was born in Wakayama, Japan. He is considered the grandfather of the macrobiotic movement. George Osawa met a descendant of Hufland in Germany in 1958. And George Osawa is long passed away, but you can still buy a macrobiotic line of foods that bears his name. And some of the best soy sauce around actually is the Osawa. That's O-H-S-A-W-A, the Osawa brand of uh, Nama Shoyu. Shoyu is a soy sauce made with wheat. It's a lot smoother. And then tamari is a soy sauce that's made without wheat. Okay, so continuing the, um, the origins of the word macrobiotic. As a teenager beset with tuberculosis and ulcers, Osawa read Diet for Health, a pioneering 1898 book by Sagan Ishizuka, an imperial army doctor, sometimes called the vegetable doctor, who was credited with pairing the principles of oriental medicine and Western science. So George Osawa was, was a, sick, a sickly uh, teenager. He finds the book by this vegetable doctor, Dr. Sagan Ishizuka, and here is Ishizuka's theory. It's based on the following principles. Human health and longevity depend on the balance between sodium and potassium. Critical to health as their interrelationship determines the ability of the body to absorb and use other nutrients. The proper functioning of the whole body depends on their balance. And this was also said by Linus Pauling as well. Food is the major factor in determining this balance. That's number two. Other factors such as geography or climate, physical activity, or psychological stress play a secondary role. Number three, health and sickness depend on the food before anything else. Health and sickness depend on food before anything else. The physical base of operation is achieved through proper daily intake of food. Balance at the level of mineral salts. Disease occurs because of an imbalance between sodium and potassium caused by eating improperly. And there's a word in Japanese called shokuiku. It's the Japanese term for food education. The law defines it as the acquisition of knowledge about food and nutrition, as well as the ability to make appropriate decisions through practical experience with food, with the aim of developing people's ability to live on a healthy diet. Osawa retreated to the mountains, where he claimed he cured himself largely by adhering to a diet based on Ishizuka's teachings and the ancient Taoist concept of yin and yang. Osawa used seven criteria to define health. Lack of tiredness or fatigue. Lack of tiredness or fatigue. Good appetite. Good sleep. Good memory. Good humor. Precision of thought and action. And gratitude. In 1931, he published The Unique Principle, a spiritual philosophical text tracked dawing on both Eastern and Western thinking in which Osawa laid out his theory of the opposing forces in the universe and their application to a diet based in part on Zen monastic cooking. So this view is essentially a national socialist view. The Taoist macrobiotic view is essentially a national socialist view. It's uh, contrary to the way everything else just has to be extreme and be an ideology. And, and like, this is, if everyone was thinking this way, well, things would 
things would be a lot better. Um, but the belief always was, at least what I heard growing up, is that if we all ate this way, we would have world peace. That was one of the, the tenets of it. Um, I don't know if enough people are eating like this, and that's not when we have world peace, but there are probably many reasons why we don't. But one of the beliefs was that we would have world peace if everyone just ate their their diet and practiced the Tao. Maybe we would. So most of the time we hear about the word macrobiotic, we hear about this like weird type of veganism that doesn't use nightshade vegetables. And that is true. There aren't really nightshades uh, consumed, uh, which is, you know, those are newer foods. They're, you know, you want to have them here and there depending on what your condition is. Uh, but to eat them all the time is, I think that's a folly. So oftentimes the Zao Sludge Media will refer to macrobiotics as a vegan diet. Uh, it's not. As time has gone on, they've kind of made it more like that. It's not. Typically, it was always more of like a fish and egg thing, or at least that's how I grew up anyway. But if we really think about things from like a macrobiotic perspective and we think about the work that Dr. Price did, it's about what is available there. So for someone who lives in an area that's, got like sheep that's going to be macrobiotic for them to eat that for someone who lives in an area where there's a lot of game birds that's going to be macrobiotic for someone who lives in an area where they can get some freshwater fish that's going to be macrobiotic so it depends what's available where you live and if you look at those blue zone areas they all eat really differently i think it's uh nicoya costa rica okinawa japan sardinia um, what's the other one? Sardinia, uh, Ikaria, Greece. And there's one more that I can't remember. Is it America? Oh, Yorba Linda, Cal uh, California, Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah, they actually live a long time, those people. But those people all kind of eat differently, right? And some of those studies were actually a bit, a bit skewed too, to kind of promote more of Zog's idea of what the diet should be. And this was before the whole ancestral con. They kind of got people more like with the plant-based Mediterranean con, which that could have actually even been a ploy to get people to eat a lot more nightshades, a whole Mediterranean diet. And yeah, there were good facets of that diet for sure. There's there's good facets of every diet. Like that diet kind of promoted the idea of eating, eating more freshly, right? Eating more fresh foods, eating foods that were a little bit lighter, you know, so it was actually there, you know, some some good points there. But overall, any type of iteration of anything that's really not of your area is probably going to be, you know, not the best thing to be eating. So this is what Osawa did. He laid out this criteria. He um, applied it to Ishizuka's teachings as well as the ancient Taoist concept of yin yang. And so they tell us that the diet is basically vegan, but like I said, it's not necessarily vegan. A lot of people who are eating this way, they call themselves that. That's their own business. But the thing is that it's similar to what Weston A. Price saw in the idea that grains and beans play a big part of the diet, right? And this for this one, for macrobiotics, typically it's steamed vegetables. Looking back at this with the eyes I have now, I would say that the vegetable choices tend to be very high in vitamin A. A lot of kale, carrots, squash, broccoli, etc. Not spinach, but that tends to be uh, what's eaten. And uh, seaweed, 
seaweed's a little high in vitamin A or somewhat high in vitamin A, and there's a lot of seaweed in this uh, diet, and some people find it very hard to digest. That would be something else to consider. There are some fermented foods. Some of those are good, especially like the natto. Uh, there's too much soy in this diet too, at least the historical ones. So that's not good either. And it really needs more protein. But the fact that it has some great vegetables when they're not the ones that are really, really high in A, and the grains and the beans, and lots of broths, and some pickles, those are kind of the strong points. It just needs to have more meat and less vitamin A vegetables. So what I've been doing lately is like a mad scientist that I am, combining all of this, kind of going over this as a template, replacing the foods, um, the vegetables in here that are too high in vitamin A, putting in the new vegetables, adding the protein, and kind of orchestrating or kind of creating this actual, you know, pro-metabolic ancestral diet that is low in vitamin A, but high in protein, not dripping in fat, and it's very tasty and feels really good to eat this way. So the macrobiotic philosophy divides foods into yin and yang categories. So all this Western stuff of calories, vitamins, uh, that is, is not a part of this. This is about the energies of food. So you aim to create a balance between your foods. When you think about how you make stuff, you think about how you balance the foods. You're not thinking about macros or any of that type of Western tabulation. So yin or yin foods are considered cool and expansive. That would be the black part of the yin-yang design, okay? Yang foods are considered warm or contractive. That's the white part. A balanced approach to this duality is thought to bring about health, energy, and calm, which is probably why they promote extremes and the chance they get. So that's a bit of just, just a little bit of overview. I mean, this is a lot of information is out there about macrobiotics. Um, there's so many books. This is just a little bit of an overview for you to kind of understand that it's a national socialist perspective of thinking about food and how this is completely and totally different than the approach that they want us to take when we're trying to find a quote, ancestral diet. So now the connection between the national socialists and macrobiotics. Macrobiotics was seen as a dietary vehicle of purity by the national socialists and a way to lead the German folk back to nature. Henrik Himmler believed that macrobiotics was the key to health and long life. I believe the National Socialists were interested in macrobiotics as a way to cleanse the blood and instill purity with body and mind, and a way to communicate with the gods more clearly. I found this website years ago. I think it's actually taken down now, so I'm glad I, I ripped this and, and copied it. But um, it was this propaganda for the... Um, for the macrobiotic diet being like a danger because Hitler was macrobiotic. It was hilarious. So every other dietary regime out there talks shit about Hitler. And then this website's telling you like, stay away from, stay away from this. Hitler was doing this. Stay away from it. <laughs> Funny how this works. So supposedly he converted because of its purported dietary benefits. And now that I think about this, I'm sure most people listening are familiar with the Hitler was a vegetarian thing, right? I think that this is probably how the rumors started. They probably thought that if he was eating macrobiotically, that he was vegetarian, but that's not true. Macrobiotics is not a vegetarian diet. It got watered down to a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet. We can see what happened to Dr. Weston A. Price's work, right? It ends up becoming like the carnivore diet over time. 
which is like the exact opposite of what it's like. The Skeksis are really good at promoting extremes and completely, totally inverting something and making you think it's the it's the same thing, um, but it's better than than the original thing. Like they're really good at that, and that's essentially what they've done with with this. So when you hear that thing that Hitler was a vegetarian, I think that's just a story. I think that's just a story, and I think it's based on the fact that he was um, interested in macrobiotics. He was also interested in. Um, biodynamic farming, especially, um, I believe Rudolf Hess was interested in that. We'll talk about that in just a bit. So they say in Hitler's table talk, section 66, 1941, 1944, that he professed to be a vegetarian. But as far as I know, Hitler's table talk has been debunked as being um, fake. So I think that that is another thing that they put in. They want people to think that Hitler was a vegetarian. So they get our people into that thing, right? So Hitler was not a vegetarian. He was a, he was a pro-animal, animal rights guy. He was an animal lover. He was anti-vivisection, which is the, um, you know, dissection of animals. He was anti-kosher slaughter. The NSDAP banned vivisection. They banned kosher slaughter. So I think oftentimes they say he's a vegetarian or was because he was macrobiotic and because he was anti-vivisection, because he was anti-kosher slaughter and because he was an animal lover. So I think that's where the vegetarian myth happens with... Um, with Hitler. And also when they talk about him, this is ridiculous. I had this, oops, I had this passage about saying he was vegetarian, which of course comes from the New York Times, so we can we can really not think that's a reliable source, obviously. So they talk about his meal and they say it's like vegetarian. Meanwhile, it contains like soup and eggs. We know that soup is oftentimes with a meat broth. I'm sure it was in the 30s, right? And then they talk about him having like ham, like in the sentence afterwards. <laughs> wow. And they expect us to believe that. Okay. So a little bit more about this. Rudolf Hess was actually the most interested in macrobiotics of all of the NSDAP. He was also into Ariosophy. He was like a real mystical, like esoteric guy. Uh, and he would actually bring his own macrobiotic food to the meetings of the chancellery and heat them up. Um, and he actually refused meals served at the chancellery by Hitler's chef because Hess only ate organic food, as did Morton Bormann. It seemed that oh, Hess was most devoted to biodynamic gardening and macrobiotics. And he was a believer in natural healing and natural macrobiotic nutrition. When the biodynamic farmers were attacked by proponents of chemical fertilizers and the National Socialist Minister of Economics, Econ Economics in Thuringen signed a ban on biodynamic products back in November 15 of 1933, they decided on the advice of and with help from the landscape architect Alwyn Seifert to turn to Hess for help. So he was sympathetic to the plight of biodynamic farmers, but he was not interested in anthro. Sophie. So he had designed and built a garden of Hess's uh, villa in Munich and had access there. So biodynamic farming was a, a big thing that they really wanted to do, which really is very interesting. It works with the planets, it works with the zodiac, and all of this was kind of the foundation of a lot of this whole kind of healthy nutrition that they were wanting to work on. And I've heard some propaganda stories that they supposedly wanted to grow all of these soybeans in Germany and they were calling them, quote, Nazi beans. Um, 
I think that's just a hoax. I don't know why they would focus on soy anyway. That doesn't really seem like it makes any sense. And they also write here in this article saying that um, many incarnations um, of white supremacy orchestrate some type of uh, naturalist diet and a relationship to the environment that borrows something from a leftist version of it that we know better. <laughs> so see how they shroud all this stuff saying like, don't eat like this, you know, Hitler ate like this, you know, white supremacists eat like this. Crazy. So it goes on to say that um, the diets, the diets of yesteryear were filled with uh, fruits and vegetables and cereals and nuts and legumes with more minimal dairy. Um, there were also other foods as well. Um, cereals were the basis of the diet during the golden age. So maybe this whole idea that we are supposed to eat meat and that we're cavemen, maybe that's just not really true in some way, or it's, it's not really relatable to us because it would be really hard to just sustain on that and hunt all the time. We need some type of starchy stuff to keep us going as well. So maybe we've been sold, um, lies. So the basic way of eating macrobiotically, I would say, would be eating um, whole grains, like whole grain products are properly prepared. Maybe sometimes um, products that are made from grain, like a good bread, uh, really good noodles, maybe make your own crackers, but you get the idea, like more of that than like chips and, and stuff like that. It includes uh, legumes or beans. I would say eating low A vegetables. Um, I would say a little bit of fermented food if that works for you. Some people don't need it. I'm not really huge on ferments, but if someone feels better with a little bit of it, that's something that you could include. Possibly a little bit of fruit, but not a tremendous amount of fruit because we're always told that we're supposed to eat a tremendous amount. Think about the European context of that. It really wouldn't make much sense, especially now when we're in the winter. You want to balance the yin and the yang of the meal. Also using mild seasonings. It's something that I grew up on, very mild seasoned food, as opposed to this really heavy, spicy food that promoted, they promoted the whole heavy, spicy food thing and the vegan milieu and the ancestral milieu, like everywhere, like heavily seasoned food. Then animal foods, um, depending on what animal foods would be in your area or what you like, um, nuts and seeds, uh, mild beverages, like things that aren't, um, aren't caffeinated. Another thing too, like that's something that's got to go, especially if someone wants to not have um, stress and not just be flitting and fleeting. Like that creates a, a dialectical mind, I think, caffeine, which is probably why they want us using it, right? As opposed to just seeing that kind of radical centrist, like straight on perspective. I was also thinking about with spices and how all the people in the world who use like tons of spice, they seem like they have the lower IQs. Is that like a horrible... Not horrible to say but I guess it's just it's kind of just seems just like a correlation with that people who use tons of spice lower IQ so basically a macrobiotic diet to me would be eating a diet that has enough soluble fiber that is low in vitamin A that has enough protein that is seasonal that is tasty right so eating eating meats um, eating vegetables eating beans, eating maybe some grains, 
eating other stuff, that type of stuff, simple seasonings. And the things that are usually not eaten or at least mentioned not to eat would be nightshade vegetables, tomatoes, peppers, potatoes, and eggplants. Potatoes are the least um, offensive because those are high, um, less, no, those have less A, all the other ones have more A. Also things that are high in oxalic acid like spinach and beets, those are also both high in vitamin A, they're not recommended or they're used very sparingly because the reason is they're extremely yin. So that's their reasoning, everyone's got their own reasoning, but if we're thinking about balance and we're not just thinking about, you know, vitamin A and oxalic acid and nightshades and solanine and all of that, they're extremely yin. So if we're going to eat something extremely yin, that means we're probably going to crave something extremely yang, like sugar. No, excuse me, not sugar. That's yin. Going to something extremely yang, like really, maybe really salty chips, maybe meats, right? So in a way, when you eat more of these extreme foods, you crave more of them, right? You crave more of the, the opposite of it. You crave the, like if you eat a lot of sugary foods, you're going to crave a lot of like really young, salty food. So it creates that back and forth as opposed to having more of a balance in the middle. In the middle. And it's thought that nightshades, because of the alkaloid solanine, affect the calcium balance in the body. Some people also say that nightshades can be inflammatory and cause osteoporosis. So those are some basic guidelines right there. Also eating organic food, eating food that's grown locally um, within 400 miles is typically the recommendation. Adjust the energy of the food to the energy of the seasons and the time of day. Of course, you'd eat different things now than you would in August. Cook food over a flame, not an electric burner or microwave. Uh, microwave is definitely a no-no, but electric stoves are not good either. Um, a flame is best. Use clay pots or stainless steel cookware. Cook frequently with methods that use um, liquids is so important. Every time we go out to eat, we see everything's like dry cooked, baked, broiled, fried, you know, all roasted. Cook wet methods, pressure cooking, boiling, steaming, soups, stews, etc., as opposed to dry cooking. It can actually make someone look a lot younger and their food digests a lot better because they're eating food that has moisture in it. Don't eat commercially processed foods that contain additives and engage in some type of movement. The macrobiotic lifestyle would say something like shiatsu, uh, doin, meditation, spiritual practices, etc. Some of the benefits that one can expect by eating this way, less or no fatigue, better health, relief from all pains and sicknesses like colds and flus, better appetite, able to eat the simplest food with complete joy and deep gratitude, better sexual appetite and more joyful satisfaction. Deep and good sleep every night without foul dreams. The ability to fall asleep within minutes of lying down. Improved memory, leading to better relationships. Greater freedom from anger, fear, and suffering. Ability to view difficulties as positive learning experiences. Better clarity in thinking and promptness in action. More generosity in our interactions. Greater control over personal destiny. The belief that nothing in life is too difficult greater honesty with oneself and others, and finally, improved understanding of oneness within, or God. So a more balanced way of living, a more balanced diet, creates a more balanced person, which of course is exactly what Zog wouldn't want. That's why they would promote all these ancestral cons to get everyone totally stressed out and imbalanced, and they always find a way to uh, drive people off a cliff.
So that was just a little, very brief introduction to macrobiotics uh, with my little twist on everything and how I interpret it now compared to how I interpret it as a youngster. I wish I had grown up with more protein. Looking back, um, that would have been a great addition to the other stuff that I have, was already was already eating, but it really gives you awareness for staying away from a lot of just processed um, junk foods when you eat in a really clean way. So now we're gonna to get to the questions. We've got some here in the chat from Effervescent M. I'm soaking some beans for tomorrow. You mentioned not using vinegar in your broth. Would you use an acid in your bean soaking water like the Weston A. Price Foundation suggests or do you just do plain filtered water? I was also wondering if you could talk about cooking vessels and their different toxicity levels. I feel like a lot of people overlook that in their health journey. Air fryers and all those trendy cooking appliances are clearly very toxic as microwaving in my opinion. I'm currently using glass in uncoated ceramic, carbon steel frying pans and stainless steel pots. Limiting cast iron used to my wood oven or over a fire. All my copper vessels have become decor in light of what I've learned lately. So with beans, I just use plain water. That's it. I just cover them with a lot of water, a lot, a lot of water. Make sure I cover them way over what they are because oftentimes they'll swell up quite a, quite, quite a bit. I do that in the evening uh, before I go to bed typically or sometimes after dinner. And I just rinse them off in the morning and then I put them in a pot with fresh water to cover. I put a bay leaf in there and then I bring it to a boil and I cook them for 90 to 120 minutes, depending on how big the beans are. And I think cooking vessel wise, uh, glass is supposed to be the best, like actually glass cookware, but it takes more time to heat up. I don't know if it's safe for every burner. It is safe for gas range. I'm not sure about other ranges. Um, it takes a long time to heat up. It has to be heated up, I think, gently. And it's really not very good for dry cooking. It's better for wet cooking. Uh, I think stainless steel is probably the best type of stuff you could use for most of your cooking. The clay stuff is okay too, but you have to be sure that it's a brand that's um, doesn't have toxins in it because sometimes clays can have heavy metals as well as minerals. Like there's something called the Vita Clay Pot, which I have, which is basically, I guess you'd say a clay slow cooker. That's pretty good. I know I know people like Rastas who follow what's called the Ital diet. They call it the Vital diet. They are meticulous about what they cook in and they typically only cook out of like earthenware and they use wood wood utensils. So that would be like the most, I guess you'd say, high level of that so that's kind of like the best stuff but stainless steel is good um i think those ceramic pans are kind of so so copper i definitely wouldn't be using like you said you're not anymore carbon steel i stopped using because it's pretty much uh cast iron because it rusts so it's got iron i still use my cast iron pan i have used it a few times to make burgers, but um, I think I'm going to stop using that and just use stainless steel for the most part. But I think if you're doing more wet cooking, it'll be easier to use stainless steel because people run into more problems of what to use for what they're cooking when they're constantly cooking things with more dry heat than, um, than wet heat. 
And yes, the air fryer is very trendy. I had one a while ago. Uh, it was in a time when I was living in a place where I actually didn't have a stove. All I have is I think a toaster oven. It was like, it was really hard for me. Like I've never been in that situation before in my life, even when I travel. So I did use an air fryer for a certain small amount of time in the past, but I definitely would not recommend them. It's, it's basically just a microwave that is um, a little smaller and um, crispier. That's what it is. I would, I would say use a toaster oven or use, use an oven, uh, stay away from the, the fad type of uh, devices. Goth King is saying, is this a white nationalist podcast? Um, no, it's not. It's uh, something different than you've ever heard. Hello, someone is saying. Hello. So yeah, that's what I would um, that's what I would recommend in regards to that question right there. And now I'm going to get to some other questions that um, people have asked me. One question was, um, in many people's budgets right now, there is increasingly affected more each week. Many cannot afford, um, cannot afford to eat, you know, or afford very to afford to spend a lot of money on food or convince others to co-op such a strategy. What concentrations, categories, or what specific foods would you still allocate extra money for under duress as opposed to above all as the ideal? I guess stated differently, in an imperfect world, where do the optimum compromises for financial considerations lie? Well, that's a good question. I would say focusing on stocking up on stuff like the grains and the beans would be a good, a good thing. And I would always recommend dry uh, I really don't recommend canned because of the heavy metals that are in canned food. I, I don't use canned food very often. Um, I have, I do have some cans in the house, but it's not something I use very often because of, of the metals. So I would say to get, um, dried, uh, beans and grains are good things to store. You could always get like dried fruits to store. Um, that's good. You can get some cans of some stuff to store too. You can get um, beans and fruit in cans as well. Um, you can get some canned vegetables if you want to store that type of stuff. You can get things like powdered milks. Uh, you can store that. Even things like um, dried vegetables, uh, jerky. Those are kind of the things that I would I would recommend for storage. You could always get a big bag of rice. That's something that's that's good too. Typically, you can buy um, things like olive oil in bulk, but you wouldn't want to buy too much because it would possibly go rancid. Um, what else? I guess you could get maple syrup and things like that in bulk. Maybe even things like oatmeal or or cereals. I mean, like hot cereals. I don't really mean cold cereals. I don't really consider cold cereals to be something that are uh, health promoting. I, I don't really think that people should be eating cold foods in, in general. That's a, that's bad for your hormones. They never tell you that, do they? No, they don't want you to uh, be healthy. So that's why they don't say those types of things. So that would be my considerations in regards to some things people could buy, just things that are shelf stable, that are inexpensive and actually are for most of them, they don't take up that much space. I would recommend those types of things. Okay, moving on with some more questions. And someone named Rocky Raccoon has joined us. Hello. 
Greetings. Okay, so I've got some other questions here. Your thoughts about gluten containing grains and flours. Is it really the gluten that's so bad? I know in Ayurvedic cooking, for example, they never even ferment the wheat and usually people tolerate these diets pretty well, even though they usually lack protein to be sustainable, in my opinion. I'd be very interested in what the real Ayurvedic way of eating before vegetarian, vegetarianism was enforced. As far as I know, the real Ayurvedic diet was one that included um, animal foods and talked about the medicinal properties of fresh meat. So somewhere along the way, something happened where that was lost in translation and it became a lacto-vegetarian diet with emphasis on, on ghee and, and yogurt and things like that when it was originally a diet that included fresh meat. Notice fresh meat, not aged meat, which is gross and not nearly as healthy. People spend money for that, which is mind-zoggling. So with the whole gluten thing, I think it's nuanced. I think it's many things. First of all, the gluten or the grains that are mentioned during those, those times when a lot of those Ayurvedic texts were written, it's a very different plant than what we have today. The one we have today is frankenwheat. It's bred to be um, very short and hearty and to have a higher percentage of gluten. I've read in certain instances that gluten can be like 90% higher than it was back in the day. So that just gives you an idea of why people have all these problems these days. Uh, wheat's also been hybridized. Sometimes things like barley and rye are better options for people than wheat because it's been less hybridized. It has glyphosate spread and sprayed all over it most of the time, especially here in the States. And something else, being vitamin A toxic will actually make someone gluten intolerant. So why are we seeing so much gluten intolerance, especially among women who have smaller livers, more estrogen, and are more likely to have fell for the snare of eating all the brightly colored vegetables than guys, right? Well, this is why, because we have a Franken, um, Frankenzog or Zog Frankenstein type of um, thing happening to the wheat plant. And then we have people who already have toxicity and that's why it becomes the way it becomes. And also people are, I think, overdoing wheat. They like all their meals are wheat or they're eating the shittiest wheat outside the house. And that's why sourdough is something that people can break down more because it actually kind of helps break down some of the toxins in it. So that makes sense for that. Who's really eating barley or rye? Very few people. So I think with the gluten thing, if someone's having sensitivity to wheat, I would say to look into uh, eating in a way that's low vitamin A and also think about avoiding wheat for a while and maybe eating barley and rye until you kind of heal what's, uh, what's going on. Next question. Ancient grains and freshly ground flour. I thought the Weston A. Price Foundation said that we need to ferment all grains because this is what Sally Fallon tells everyone. But according to WAP, it's much more important to use freshly ground grains. I've heard them talk about the freshly ground grains thing. I think that's because of the vitamin E. And yes, that is true. And anything freshly ground, nuts, grains, there's always going to be more vitamin E. That's just, or whatever they're telling us is, is vitamin E. We were talking earlier about the whole fat-soluble vitamin thing. So with the ancient grains and the freshly ground flour, I mean, not everyone's going to have access to freshly ground. It may not be necessarily necessary. It may be like a nice, a nice plus, like let's say freshly plucking a vegetable out of the garden, maybe something like that. 
I don't know if we have to ferment all grains. That's what kind of lost me when I was doing my studies and my dabbles in this um, Weston A. Price Foundation diet. The idea that we were soaking all these grains and soaking them in something that something was like acidulated, like lemon juice or yogurt or vinegar, which I don't like the idea of any of that. That makes no sense to me. Even with the oatmeal, I was like, this is disgusting. I just started eating it the way I used to eat it. And from the research I've done recently, that doing all this soaking for all this stuff actually activates the vitamin A more that are in the small amount. There's a very small amount. This, it is in every food pretty much, but it activates the small amount that's in beans and grains by um, doing all this sprouting. And what do we see these days? Eat all this sprouted flour. So I think there's definitely something that could be going on there. And something else too, once a bean is sprouted, it's no longer soluble fiber, it's now insoluble. So they're always promoting these foods in the wrong preparatory context. So I think the whole idea of soaking things until they ferment or using all the vinegar and the, um, the lemon juice and the drop of kefir or, or yogurt, I don't think that's necessary. And as far as ancient grains, maybe you're meaning like the kamut and the spelt. Sometimes people play around with those and they feel a lot better because they also are lower in gluten and they're less hybridized. So that's probably why. Thoughts on the ideal protein carb ratio, especially for menstruating women? Well, we definitely need carbohydrates um, for sure. That's a Thing. And I know a lot of women are afraid to eat, but we need to be eating carbohydrates. I would recommend getting carbohydrates from beans, from grains, from uh, vegetables, a little, maybe a little bit from fruit, things like that. Fat, we need some, but we don't need a huge amount. If someone's already maybe over, maybe they need less. Like if someone's overweight, maybe less. If someone's extremely lean, they may need to add more. And with protein, most women fall through the cracks with the protein thing, and, and some guys do too. We definitely do need protein. I would recommend, I think, 70 typically is what I try to get around, even more, not too much, but not too little, but around 70 or so. And that would, of course, go up during uh, pregnancy and, and breastfeeding. But I would say basically the ideal diet for a menstruating woman who wants to keep um, keep healthy and have good good healthy cycles would be a diet that has adequate carbohydrates, that has adequate soluble fiber, that has a good amount of animal protein, that has you know a minimal to a moderate amount of fat, and um, a diet that was low in vitamin A. Which foods are best for fertility? That's the next question. I would say um, living a low stress life is the best thing for fertility. It's not really a food, but that's probably the best thing for it, I would say, is just living, living low stress. In general, that's good for a lot of health type of things, just saying no to it or just giving it up, just saying I'm not doing this anymore. I would say beans are actually a really good food for fertility because they can um, help shuttle the excess hormones out of the system. There's one bean out there that's heavily promoted that will raise estrogen, cortisol, and adrenaline and also make you depressed and borrow energy that you don't have from the future to create tension in your body, which leads to fatigue, which leads to depression, which leads to anxiety, and that's the coffee bean. That's not good for fertility. But they're telling you it is through the pro-metabolic diet. 
And then there are beans, which are good for fertility because they have soluble fiber and they'll help shuttle all that adrenaline, cortisol, and estrogen from the coffee and the other shitty habits out of your body. So that would be my thing to say beans are good for fertility. Um, protein is really important for fertility. Just eating enough food, uh, staying away from vitamin A is important for fertility. Uh, good blood flow. I know it's not a food, but that's just something I would I would add in there. Uh, just eating in a balanced way, making sure you're eating enough, not depriving yourself, um, but not gorging yourself. And the more you eat in a healthy way, a lot of these like cravings are just going to go away. I think oftentimes the vitamin A causes people to have these cravings because it has like a drug-like effect. Ideas for daily meals or what to eat in a day examples. I think the day should always be started with a good breakfast. I think the good breakfast is a foundation of, of any good day. So I like to start my day with um, grain coffee that's got no caffeine whatsoever. It's um, just roasted barley. So I mix that with collagen. So I start with that and I'll usually have an apple. And then I have sausage. Then I have oatmeal. And I have eggs, which do have some vitamin A in them, but that's what I have for my breakfast to get about 30 grams of protein. Everything else is low in vitamin A. Then I usually have beans as a snack, something like that. Um, maybe I'll have, usually have like the beans like alone. And then after that, I will probably have my lunch, which will typically be something that's left over from dinner. Today I had some leftover rice and some leftover chicken stir fry. It was a slow vitamin A chicken stir fry that I made that had white carrots and celery with ground chicken. Had a little bit of Osawa soy sauce. I served that with rice so I had that for my, my lunch. And then for another snack I might have uh, beans or maybe I'll have Another like grain coffee with, with something else, with beans, maybe something like that. And then for dinner, I'll typically have a low A vegetable, some type of uh, grain or grain product, beans, and then some type of protein, either like a piece of white meat fish, a piece of chicken, or a piece of red meat in, in some way. So that's typically kind of how I eat. I mean... At least now, it could be evolving at different times, but I make sure that I get enough soluble fiber, that I get a good amount of carbohydrates, that the vegetables I'm eating are mostly low A, that I'm getting a good amount of protein. I will do broths here and there as well. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm doing now and making sure I'm getting the beans. And that's pretty much how I eat. Sometimes I'll have little snacks that I make or I make naturally sweetened desserts sometimes using things like maple syrup, so I'll have stuff like that. But I'm eating very simply now and feeling like I'm really liking what I'm eating as well. And I really do feel like I'm saving money too, as opposed to trying all these like crazy things and all these crazy supplements. It's just a lot nicer. I'm really just only taking a couple of minerals too. So a lot, a lot better. Learn to make uh, pemmican. It lasts for a very long time. Yes, I've heard of that. Uh, I've not made it, though. Okay, how the low-A diet benefited you and what your conclusions are for the future. 
Well, it's very early on. It's only been about five, six weeks or something like that. But I would say so far, I feel just better. I just feel kind of like more the way I used to feel, if that makes sense, like more chill, more relaxed, um, just happier. Um, I'd say going to the bathroom is better, enjoying food more. I had been feeling nauseous prior, which was something that had cropped up while I was doing the repeat approach. That's gone. Uh, more joy for cooking. Uh, my menstrual cycle is better. Um, I feel like I lost weight, even though I wasn't intentionally trying to do that, but that's great too. Uh, easier to stay away from caffeine. Easier to stay away from any type of extreme foods. So yeah, I would say that's how it's benefited me so far. Conclusions for the future, it's kind of hard to say for the future. What I I could say right now because it's so it's so early on and um but I think that it really has promise and the fact that it's being suppressed. The fact that it's so basic, the fact that so many people have ameliorated so many different issues, I'm very optimistic about the future of uh, where this is going to go and how it's going to help other people. Importance of minerals and how to get them from food or other sources. Well, food's always the best source for everything. Uh, try to get the best quality that you can, I would say, with that. And uh, I would say using a topical magnesium product is really helpful, whether it's a transdermal spray or whether it's a magnesium lotion or cream, I like to make my own. Sometimes good things to supplement could be also magnesium, especially if you need help um, pooping more. Um, I also sometimes say potassium is good, uh, sometimes K2 and sometimes zinc. That's pretty much what I would, I would use. But in general, I try to use food as my base. Thoughts on collagen and gelatin powders? Well, they don't have, they're not meat, first of all, and they don't have everything that meat has. They do have some of the different amino acids that muscle meat tends to lack. Of course, I think making your own wiggly bone broth is probably number one, but uh, these are still good to add to the diet, uh, especially if someone has a difficult time getting enough protein. I probably wouldn't use more than two or three scoops, three scoops per, per a day but they can be good to add a little bit of bulk to someone's diet, but um, they should never really take the replacement of meat. Like I would not want to see someone's diet on a piece of paper if it was a client and, and see that their own their only source of protein was coming from collagen and gelatin. That's not okay. But I think as an addition to an already good diet, I think it's uh, something you can use to kind of fill in the gaps. New thoughts on caffeine. Um, I don't think it's a pro-metabolic stimulant. I think it's a stressor. I think it's a drug of capitalism. Um, I think coffee is way more deleterious than tea. I think decaf coffee is actually more deleterious than the strongest pu'er tea from Yunnan. Uh, I think there's something in coffee that is really not good, especially for the white race, considering that it's a food that originated in Africa. So it's just some fermented bean, like a Negro bean. Uh, I think we should stay away from it and that we'd be more balanced people if we uh, went lean on caffeine. Energetics of food, TCM, macrobiotics. I talked a little bit about this on the last show, the live one when we talked about uh, nightshades. Yeah, it's just the everlasting 
um, eternal balance between yin and yang, Shakti and Shiva. That's basically what it is. It's it's very national socialistic. And as time goes on, we'll we'll uh, we'll delve into this more. We'll use this as our lens for delving into many things. And one more question: thoughts on fasting? Uh, I don't think it's a lifestyle. I think that men can get away with it more easily than women can get away with it, especially women of childbearing age. Those are the ones that really shouldn't be doing fasting. Um, I think that people doing it religiously or spiritually or for little times throughout the year is is probably not going to do any real harm unless someone was maybe seriously sick, but that would be something different altogether and the fasting would just reveal that. Um, I think it's something that's really in that context where it would be something that would be used in a kind of spiritual or religious sense or as a cleansing seasonal sense than a lifestyle. It's definitely not a lifestyle. And if someone's trying to lose weight or, you know, get fit or not have an ailment anymore, I think they should focus on reducing toxicity and balancing themselves as opposed to trying to starve themselves or fill up on nutrient dense foods. So that's it. I think I'm uh, about to get kicked off. Um, okay, thanks for listening. The anniversary extravaganza, four years of White Wellness Radio. Satnam.